Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the third greatest living American film critic, your friend, your enemy, your man in Havana. Here we are once again talking about the world of books and film and streaming TV. We've got lots of good stuff this week. We're going to talk to Pablo Gallaga about the new movie Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, the latest Marvel offering. And we're going to talk to Paula Schaefer about the new Steve Martin, Martin Short TV show on Hulu, Only Murders in the Building. We're opening with, not with Kung Fu Fighting, because that would be a cliche and it's also a really terrible song, but with the Curtis Mayfield song, Kung Fu which is a nice badass song about a badass fighting style. And, you know, Shang-Chi is a pretty badass movie. But before we get to that, we're going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor Sharon Vane about censorship and about parents opting out of reading for their kids, something they shouldn't do. Welcome to the show. Frequent Book and Film Globe contributor Sharon Vane is here. She published uh, what could be termed as, I guess, a uh, rant I don't want to call it. It wasn't that ranty. It wasn't really a scree, but it was a very impassioned plea to parents uh, to stop opting out of their children's high school and middle school reading lists. And Sharon's here to talk to us about it. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is something that's been brewing for a while. So it's been uh, it was good to get it all out and, uh, you know, warn warn people not to do that and just talk about something that we don't often see covered in the censorship discussions out there. Yeah, yeah. so what is this What is this phenomenon, right? So th- this is something, you, as you say in the piece, that you see on your social media feed, you see sort of parents just sort of slyly mentioning that they may uh, not allow their children to read certain books on lists. I, I, I'm not exactly, it's not, it's not something that I ever encountered because my, my son doesn't really like to read, but, uh, <laughs> but apparently this is something that's very common. Well, I, I see it happening more and more frequently, and um, it, it does kind of start off in typically in schools, you know, social media feeds. I've seen it happen in my kids' schools. I've talked with teachers, and I understand it's happening at other schools. Um, I've seen it happening here in Texas. I've heard tell of very similar situations happening in other places, and what happens is it it, it is sort of couched as this reminder, remember to look at your kids' reading lists, and if there's something that you feel like is not appropriate, you can request an opt-out, which means um, you can ask to pick a different book. So um, regardless of what the teacher may have planned um, for their lesson or their syllabus or their curriculum, if a parent determines that something in the book is offensive to them, then they can go and request and opt out and get frequently an alternative book um, approved, which 99 times out of 100 is something that, you know, you and I would refer to as classic, you know, and 99 times out of 100, people are opting out of newer, um, much more, uh, often popular contemporary young adult books, middle grade books, um, written by people who aren't white men. And it's just funny how that happens that all of a sudden we're opting out of things that might reflect the world a little more accurately around us. 
and in in favor of say something like Treasure Island or correct or yes Little Women or Huck, even Huck Finn. Well, I mean, look, and I, I am not, I think that children should read classic literature. We talked about this with Lily Moyeri last week, you know, that, but what it comes, what it comes down to is that children want to read, teenagers want to read books that reflect their experiences and having them read anything is a win. And if they're engaged with it, I don't see what the problem is. I just... The, the 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 sensorial impulse even on the small level just just baffles me i mean short of say the turner diaries or something like that i don't i can't <laughs> think of any i can't think of anything that that would bother me if my kid read it in school i mean what does it matter what i'm seeing um you know certainly here in um in texas where uh where i live is um it's very much from parents who would describe themselves as more conservative and they feel like, you know, characters who are gay characters who, you know, might live in uh, areas of the city that are dealing with, you know, drugs and shootings, things like that are problems. Things are that things like that are too hard for they're inappropriate for their kids to read. And it's fine. If you want to let your kid read it, you go over there and you can read it, but for us, it's not okay, and it doesn't reflect our values. And I think it's an incredibly slippery slope when parents can just sort of waltz in and say, "Okay, we're we don't we like this, we don't like this, we want this book, but not this book." Um, you know, we don't get to just wander into the classroom and dictate exactly, specifically what we're going to learn and more importantly, what we're not going to learn about. Um, to your point, I totally agree. Kid, there are places for classics. There's a place for, you know, the canon. But at this point, we want kids to read. We want kids to be excited about what they're reading. We want them to be engaged with it. We want them to be excited to pick up a book. And a lot of times they're going to be more excited about that if it's not written in Shakespearean English. Well, and what gets me, Sharon, is that, you know, we're, there, this, the, we're not talking about a debate over critical race theory. We're not talking about teachers giving them Ibram Kendi books or Robin D'Angelo books, which are ideological footballs, right? This, these are novels. Correct. <laughs> these are novels about real teenagers dealing with real teenage problems. And you can't imagine away the fact that some families have drug abuse issues. Some families have sexual abuse issues. Some teenagers get pregnant. Some right. teenagers live in violent neighborhoods. There are there are black people and Latino people, and I, you know, and I, it just surprises me. It surprises me because naively I'm under the impression that people are less racist and less intolerant than they used to be. And this sort of like subtle, this subtle undertone is just it. it it's annoying at at, work, at best. Right. I, I, I love your optimism. And yet um, I am here to tell you that um, I have seen, um, I, I mean, I, I've seen just absolutely award-winning books from award-winning authors that, you know, are novels that have absolutely like one thing at the end where main character's sister you know, is revealed to be a lesbian and that's enough to cross it off the list for some folks. And um, I think this is just a circumstance where, for whatever reason, some of these parents are feeling like 
we we want kids to read what we always read. Um, you know, Huckleberry Finn was good enough for us, and so it's good enough for my kid. Completely overlooking the fact that not everyone in classrooms is white, Christian, straight, and even if they are, I mean, what better way to get to experience something outside your own family than to read about it, to talk about it in school, to have the wide world of human existence open to you through the page in a, what I would say is a completely non-threatening way. Nobody's saying we got to go live in a neighborhood where people are selling drugs on the corner. No, I mean, but you can read a story about it. Is that so threatening that reading about it is worse than, you know, what people, some folks are actually living. Um, it's just, it does kind of boggle the mind um, that people are so vigilant about this, that they're willing to go to this level. Well, I agree with you. And I think that it's, you know, it better that they learn about other people's experiences through books and through art than through, I don't know, TikTok. There's nothing wrong with TikTok. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with TikTok, but if you, if, you know, if you're trying to like, you know, shield your child from ideological indoctrination and are keeping them from reading books and letting them watch TikTok. You're, let me tell you, you're doing it wrong. So, uh, Sharon, um, thank you again for uh, standing up for free speech and for freedom of people to read what they want to read. And uh, it sounds like this is going to be something we're going to talk about again, cover again in Book and Film Globe. Happy to do it. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Take it easy. Well, it's another month, and another Marvel Cinematic Universe movie has opened in theaters. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings appeared on our screens yesterday. I wrote a review of it in this week's Book and Film Globe, but I wanted to talk to uh, another one of our contributors about the movie so I could have a sounding board, have a lot of thoughts about this movie. Pablo Gallaga, I'm sure, does as well. Pablo covers film for us, does a lot of work with genre film, and uh, kung fu movies in particular, so... I figured he would be perfect to talk about this movie with. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me, Neil. Yeah, I yeah. talk some Marvel. It's been a while. Yeah, right? Uh, so I um, I wanted to get – I'm interested to hear what you thought of this movie. I have, I have many thoughts about it, but I wanted I wanted to get your take first. So you, want, you, you went to see it last night as we're talking, and what did you think? Yeah, I'm very aligned with your review. I think uh, it was kind of that sort of B-movie sort of tier of Marvel films. Like I, I felt like going to see an Ant-Man movie. It's nothing that's going to – really pushed the needle on the MCU too far, but uh, it was a good time. Uh, and it felt like the audience I was with really enjoyed it. It was, you know, it, it, good action set pieces and, and a lot of fun. Yeah. I, so I really, I really liked the, uh, my favorite scene, honestly, was one of the earlier, the earliest action scene, really the first full action, the, the, the bus, bus fight, the, the bus, bus fight, San Francisco. That was, a that was freaking great. Uh, super exciting. And, sort of kung almost kung fu you know i mean there was a guy with a laser arm who kept <laughs> kept cutting the bus in half but other than that it was fairly straightforward you know flipping around poles and stuff and kicking people in the face yeah that was the one that stood out for me as well i mean there's definitely some homages to kung fu stuff like you've got a scaffolding fight so that's pure jackie chan right there uh, a little bit bigger and modernized like on a skyscraper but uh you got that. You've got wire fighting, like you would see in, you know, what was popularized in the West with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, you know, and obviously you've got um, uh, Tony Lung, who's uh, done like a lot of hard-nosed stuff with Hong Kong films. So they they even did a little reference to that in some of his sort of like mafia fight type stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, Tony Lung is one of the screen's great actors. I mean, he's he's been in many Wong Kar Wai movies, and you know, Wong Kar Wai is like the Asia's ultimate artiste when it when it comes to directors. And he's also, you know, he was in some John Woo films as well. Hard, he was the star of Hard Boiled, you know. And then he hasn't, had, but he hasn't done. I don't think he's done any Western films or very few. And I don't then think he, so. Yeah, and then he pops up in this, you know, this this like Marvel tentpole, and he's not the main character. Obviously, Shang Chi, played by Simu Liu of uh, from Kim's Convenience, is your main character. But I felt like Tony Lung was the um, the emotional core of the movie, really. He was, and he gave it that gravitas. It's just that kind of elder statesman type of thing that gives some credence to the film. Like, it, he really did. Well, it's this kind of thing that Mar- Marvel does is it takes these incredibly cheesy genre movies and then loads them up with these great screen actors, just like, you know, Ant-Man had Michael Douglas, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> at the, at the, right at the middle of it. Uh, you know, and, and just, you know, it just, they always seem to manage to, to you know, they, they just cast things perfectly, you know, the... But yeah, the movie itself, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of um, non-linear narrative, a lot of going back and forth between storylines. I felt like they could have streamlined it a little bit, right? Um, It's a bit of a kung fu trope to do that, though. You know, go back to the training that that got you to where you are now. So I I, I understand it for this one. But yeah, I'm not not a huge fan of non-linear either. There was a lot of it. I mean, I, I don't mind a little bit. And I, and I, and I felt like the, uh, the flashback scenes between um, Tony Lung and, uh, the, and the woman who – what's the name of the actress who played uh, Shang-Chi's mother? Who was, she was excellent as well. I thought those were really good. And, in fact, that, that scene where they sort of meet cute in that magical forest and have their little wuxia, you know, oh, dance, yeah. that, was, that was beautifully done, actually, I thought. You know, and so that, that stuff is good. I just felt like it went back to that well a few too many times. You know, the um, the sister character was fine, but it was kind of like, oh, we need a strong female protagonist, too. Um, and I, I felt like I felt that she was she was a little little cliched. And, you know, and, and then in the end, the, the climactic scene, it relied pretty heavily on like screeching CGI demons. It felt like Raya and the Last Dragon, which is, you know, you, another film that had Aquafina in it. So it's kind of. You know, definitely a link up there. A lot of uh, mystical dragon type stuff, which is, you know, that that's Asian culture, especially Chinese culture. So that's to be expected in a story like this. But yeah, very CGI'd. It didn't stand out in memory quite as much as that bus fight. Yeah, I mean, this is such a grab bag of, I wouldn't say a- Asian tropes. I'm not going to say cliches because it kind of stands on its own. But, you know, and then you have, and, and then you mentioned Aquafina in the middle of it. There's a ton of Aquafina in this movie. She's a just wise wise cracks her way i mean she's a big movie star at this point she just sort of wise cracks her way through the mcu and she's sort of a she's like simu liu's uh sidekick she's shang chi's sidekick basically like, like the robin to his batman almost almost literally yeah right? and you mentioned in your review that they didn't force a romantic relationship there which I, I i liked that i'm glad they didn't do that yeah but there's a lot of love between the characters but it's like they're extremely platonic they're just pal yeah. they're just oh, pal- perfectly platonic like, yeah multi-dimensional pals just moving through the universe. So that was kind of cool. I don't know. I mean, this happens a lot with Marvel. Like, I'm always ready to be like, well, this is the one. This is going to be their stinker, you know? (laughs) No, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't. And I mean, mean, we'll see what happens with The Eternals. Uh, That's the next one on the docket. But, I mean, you've got Chloe Zhao directing that, so that could be amazing for all we know. Um, Yeah. I mean, they have served up a couple of stinkers. You know, Captain Marvel was pretty bad and 
um, Thor. I mean, you know, everyone likes to trash on Thor: The Dark World. That was a bad movie, but you know, it didn't try that hard either. So I don't know. But but Shang and, and there's been a lot of talk too that Shang Chi was going to be like their first uh, box office bust. Uh, there's a lot of chatter about how it's not going to make a lot of money, and I think that's that may be true, but I, I think that has more to do with pandemic movie going habits than with anything else. Yeah, it's got that adversity going right now. I mean, how, how did Black Widow do? I don't even, like, that was also kind of struggle because of the pandemic and Black, the simultaneous I, release. On well, there was the whole, right, well, there was the whole um, Scarlett Johansson lawsuit. It made a lot of money on streaming. You know, it made $120 million just from Disney Plus buys and alone. But, you know, the, the, the whole Scarlett Johansson lawsuit was uh, based around the fact that they hadn't factored that into her pay, you know, streaming fees. Right. Hey, and it turns out that, you know, at least half of the money the movie made was off of streaming. So, yeah, Black Widow didn't didn't do great. Um, you know, no, I, I don't think any Marvel movies going to do great until Spider-Man opens in December. There's no way that's not going to be like a, you know, a massive you know, uh, multi-platform hit across the but board. But see, that's, that's the thing about something like releasing Shang-Chi right now. It's about timing. And I think maybe people are holding out as... Spider-Man being that big coming out party for phase four of the Marvel universe. Like I just, I kind of had that on my calendar. My target is it's Spider-Man and Dr. Strange is like when we're really going to get going. So people might skip out on Shang-Chi just because of that. And I think that's kind of another uh, obstacle it has to overcome. Yeah. I mean, and he's a, he's a minor character in the, in the Marvel pantheon to say, to say the least. I mean, I, I, I read Marvel comic books back in the seventies. I'm old, you know, and, Shang-Chi, uh, Master of Kung Fu, was not one of my primary go-tos. Yeah, I was not familiar with the character at all. Um, you know, I think when you have a film like this where it's very much putting culture forward, uh, you would draw that comparison to, say, Black Panther, and I'm way more familiar with Black Panther than I am with Shang-Chi. Yeah, he's a bigger character. And I would say this, comparing this to Black Panther is not quite fair because Black Panther was yeah. a singular cultural Oscar caliber. <laughs> yeah. Oscar caliber, um, you know, featuring like, you know, Oscar worthy performances from Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan. And also like it was really cast. Yeah. And it was really the first um, movie to like have that sort of pan-African vibe to it. It was a completely original, whereas, you know, Shang-Chi is a lot of fun, but it's really more of an homage to stuff. You know, it's not like we've never seen a martial arts movie before (laughs) or a Chinese or a Chinese protagonist. I mean, not a, not so many Chinese American protagonists, but it's not, it's just, it doesn't have the same, it's not gonna have the same cultural impact, but it's still, still like a solid, you know, genre picture. But still pretty good. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, available now in theaters and soon enough on Disney Plus. Check it out. Pablo, thanks for talking. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, bye-bye. And now we move on to the television portion of this podcast. I have Book and Film Globe contributor Paula Schaefer here with me. Hello, Paula. Hey, Neil. So Paula writes frequently about TV for us, and this week she covered the new Steve Martin and Martin Short. I would call it a sitcom, a murders, you know, a mystery sitcom on Hulu. It's called Only Murders in the Building. And Paula, you found it uh, quite delightful, the first three episodes at least, that you were able to see. Absolutely. It's kind of nice to have a really great show to talk about for once, because I tend to watch a lot of hot garbage. Yeah. So I I watched the first couple of episodes myself, and the premise is that Steve Martin and Martin Short are sort of, um, 
no, I wouldn't call them elderly, but they're older gentlemen who are sort of at the twilight of their careers. Steve Martin is a former uh, TV actor on a on a cop show, and Martin Short is a uh, Broadway director who's down on his luck, and they stumble across a murder in, in their fancy New York City apartment building. Yeah, and they're very excited about it because wouldn't it be fun to make a podcast about that problem? Yeah. Well, murder. Yeah. Right, so they do. They, they go about starting to make – they're fans of true crime podcasts. So in some ways, the show is a satire of true crime podcasts like Serial and My Favorite Murder and those sorts of uh, shows that make uh, make light entertainment out of other people's misery, basically. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And they they do, in fact, make some light entertainment out of, out of this, for sure. Um, you know, I expected – well, I saw Steve Martin and Martin Short's stage show that they did a few years ago, and they they just had so much energy. I was almost nervous to watch this because I didn't want it to taint the memory of how fantastic that experience was, because um, they can be kind of hit or miss, and it was just a hit all the way. And um, Selena Gomez thrown in there was a weird element, and I was nervous about it being kind of creepy, and um, she somehow is an actress who can hold her own against comedy giants. Yeah, I noticed there's a lot of Selena Gomez in this, actually. They're, they're, they share equal screen time. In some ways, she gets even more screen time. She's almost like the protagonist of the show, at least in the first two episodes I watched. And, uh, yeah, I mean, well, you know, she's very appealing uh, to look at. I'm just yeah, thinking, she's pretty. Right? But... You know, you know and, 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 but she's also got a nice dry sense of humor and you're right. There's not like a big pervy element. Like these are these are not guy. They're not hitting on her. She's just kind of an equal to them. They're they they're a little bit befuddled by her her um, millennial slash Gen Z whateverness. Yeah, her style, her headphones. They kind of want to be as cool as her and can't. And you know when they try, it's kind of, it, that that adds humor to the show as well. Right. And but but there but she also likes and respects them in, in a way that she would like and respect a semi hip grandpa. And, you know, you mentioned the energy of the stage show, the Martin Short, uh, Steve Martin stage show. And that was that was fairly manic. There were lots of songs and sketches and stuff. This they they play it fairly muted here. They're actually acting. Yes. Yes, they are. And Martin Short tends to get all the acclaim because he does he always goes for the way zany kind of character. But even here, his zany is turned down to maybe a two instead of his usual 12. It's it's a really, like, you really feel for this character of Oliver that he plays, who's the theater director who has seen better days and really wants to get back to better times and just might not be able to do it. And yeah. And, and and he yeah he's acting here he's a and you know, he's an excellent actor and Steve Martin you know he I didn't realize like he hasn't really been in anything uh, other than you know his specials his, his specially with Martin Short maybe his his banjo playing persona in a while like where when was the last time Steve Martin acted in something and you know you forget like oh yeah this guy is like one of one of our major movie stars and he's able to play this sort of dry protagonist very well. Yeah, in a way that, again, you're not just like, oh, this guy's super boring. It's a, what's going on with this guy? Why is he so still and quiet? What is he thinking about? It it makes you ask 
questions about the characters the same way the characters are acting asking questions about tim kono who's the murder victim whose name they seem to like to say a lot yeah yeah so i i don't know i would say that you know my i i liked i liked the show uh maybe not quite as much as you did but i i, I do I, I have been enjoying it um and it's easy to watch with my wife who's a huge steve martin fan um so that's that's a bonus to have something we can we can do together um in in these difficult times but uh you know, I felt like the tone was a little uh, uneven, I guess, for the show. You know, it, it didn't quite it was it's not quite a satire. It's not it's not really a drama, although it has dramatic elements. You know, it, it's not a, it's not a broad comedy. So it's just kind of it's kind of an odd tone in some ways. Don't you agree? Yeah, that's kind of what I liked about it. It kind of just does what it wants and it's not worried about, oh, are, are you doing this right now? Are you the audience feeling that way right now? It kind of just has its little niche and it dives into it and just goes with it. And I think that's what made it work. Yeah, it's fairly wholesome, you know, and I, I, I equated it to, um, I was thinking about it, it's like, it feels almost like a hip updating of Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I thought that that was pretty, a pretty spot on too. It's, it's the, you know, the gender flipped murder. She wrote. We flip genders on all the shows now, but so why not make Jessica Fletcher, Fletcher, uh, Jeremy Fletcher? It yeah. definitely does, does go with that kind of tone. It, it is, it for some reason it seems to be rated TVMA, but I guess because it's about a murder. Um, yeah, well, there's some gore. There's some yeah. gore. You see, you see, you see. Uh, Tim Kono's brain head. They say shit a few times. Yeah, they swear. They they swear a little bit. They sprinkle a little bit of language through it. But I, it's PG thirteen. I mean, you know, obviously this isn't like fun for the whole family. But I, you know, I certainly. I mean, my my son is in college, so and the, the odds that he would watch this with me or with anyone else are very small. But you know, I would feel perfectly comfortable watching this with a twelve year old, thirteen year old, fourteen year old. It's not. It, it 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 hardly takes you know bold leaps and you know but the murder she wrote you know there's like some, there's no Tom Bosley which is which you know he's dead so so that <laughs> that would be hard I, I miss him uh, but there's lots of you know celebrity guest cameos you know Tina Fey pops up Sting uh, appears in it um, so it's like a higher end murder she wrote in some ways yeah yeah they, they do have some nice cameos and seeing sting there was a good reminder of back in the 90s when steve martin and, and sting were always on saturday night live like oh these guys used to just do sketch comedy and you know sting's like hey i'm still funny in a real quiet way right so all right well there you go only murders in the building which is the name of the podcast in the show and is also the name of the show it's really it's, it's clever you know it's clever it's wholesome uh it doesn't try too hard and we feature it this week on book and film globe all right thanks to paula schaefer for talking to us about the new steve martin and martin short tv show only murders in the building i only have murders in my building no petty theft just murders and here we are once again ending the book and film globe week in review podcast www.bookandfilmglobe.com i'm neil pollack the editor-in-chief of book and film globe your host every week for this amazing podcast experience we're going to close out this week with steve martin and the steep canyon rangers playing a song called so familiar steve martin expert banjo player great comedian great american 
legend, and now he's also on Hulu. Join us next week. We'll talk to you soon. value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.